0: Good morning, Church. My name's Jacinta, and it's my privilege to be reading from the Word today. Uh, Today's reading comes from Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 to 37, and you can find that on page 1040 of your Bible. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to St. Stephen's, my name is Prash. I'm the senior minister, a very warm welcome. If you're joining us, new or for the first time in a while, it's lovely to have you with us. If you're wondering where the heater is, it's down the front here. Um, uh, see I know how Anglicans sit you see um, we, we didn't do it for those who are online, we didn't put it down the front to lure you all to the front of the building but just uh, we thought we'd try it this week to see if it uh, keeps the, retains the heat better than putting it at the back near the doors so we'll just see how it goes, you can give me your feedback later although I did, as I said to someone else I don't control the weather or the rain, uh, the, t- the temperature so don't blame me for the cold. Um, good to be with you this morning. We're in week four of our series uh, looking at work, rest and retirement. We've spent uh, some time laying foundations. Last week we talked about the primary dynamic, the primary focus of work being to glorify God. And uh, this week we want to look at that secondary component. Before I do that, I'm going I'm to uh, pray for, that God would grant us wisdom. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts and minds this morning and make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, um, uh, we, uh, there, was a, there was a survey done talking about work from home. This is, of course, the new, kind of di- the new fad, the new dynamic in our workplaces. More and more people working from home. Uh, primarily, you'd think uh, that the catalyst has been, of course, the pandemic, And the need to do that in those uh, initial months of the pandemic, certainly. Um, Before the pandemic, 30% of people worked from home, so 2019. So that already was a significant number of people, actually, even if you weren't in the 30%. A third of people work from home. uh, and, And by that, they're not describing domestic unpaid work, which is work. And I've kept saying that, of course. Uh, they're talking about paid work, um, work from home. After the pandemic, the number went up to 40%, so a 10% increase in the space of two years, quite a significant change. And people have done that, and adopt, I know many of you have made that decision, or your households have made that decision, and, and people have made that decision for good reasons. Uh, you save on travel time, you save on travel cost now, at the, the cost of petrol, for example. Uh, there's conveniences there, you can pick up the kids and you, know, you don't have to pay for after-school care necessarily, etc. Uh, there's lots of benefits. What's interesting, though, is that coinciding with this move has been um, increased levels of loneliness. So in 2001-2009, they did a survey and the survey results said about a third of people felt lonely in their life, about a third of people. They did the same survey at the end of last year, uh, September, so after the lockdown, after after you could get back out of your households again, 55% of people, 54% of people said they were lonely. It's a huge change, isn't it? Now, of course, it's likely that the pandemic played a significant role in that number increasing, but it's also more than likely uh, that that number reflects something about the way we do our life uh, and the choices that we make and our culture makes for us as well, which has shaped our experience. People are more lonely. There's a trade-off, isn't there? You get something good, but you also get something bad with it. Robert Bella wrote a book called Habits of the Heart in the 70s, and he, he identified... Um, a a change that was taking place in culture which I think was definitely true for uh, America in the 70s and 80s but is most definitely now true for Australia in the 2020s. We are moving he says to an even greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person. Uh, The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for common good says Bella and I think that is uh, he, he coins it, the term expressive individualism. He's not the only person to describe this term. And I think that is reflected in our culture. More and more, we are, we, or we encounter people at least, who conceive of themselves as individuals. Even uh, the pandemic actually has highlighted this, I think. You know, we, our households are now an individual little bubble. The walls are higher around our little homes than they have ever been before, even though we're lonely. Uh, as individuals, we find ourselves more and more isolated from people. It's harder to, to break in and make contact with people. There are spaces in our life which are no longer open to other people easily. It takes a long time to cross over. And so what he's describing here uh, is, I think, reflected in the, our, our experience, certainly reflected in the, my anecdotal uh, experience of other people's life as well. And I think that that impacts the way we think about work. This is not just a, oh, whoa, the the world is, is worse than it was. No, I think this has a genuine impact on the way we think about work, not just in terms of we now would much prefer to work from home, but I think it impacts the way we conceive of the purpose of work, that work is primarily an individual pursuit for individual benefit or, at the very best, for individual household's benefit. I want to say here, this is where the Bible is going in the, almost the exact opposite direction. The Bible's conception of work is very far from this. Very, very far from this. In fact, the Bible would say, as I said last week, the primary purpose of work is to glorify God. Right? The primary purpose of work is to make God look as big as he really is. We used the telescope analogy last week in Spotlight and picked that up again in the sermon. The telescope makes the moon look, well, much closer to its actual size than it it might from a distance. Uh, But the second purpose of work is actually to love your neighbour. The second purpose of work is to love your neighbour, to serve other people. This is, see, actually, in the biblical idea of our labour and effort, not just our paid effort, of course, and I want to just keep reinforcing that, right? When I talk about work, I'm not talking about what you get paid to do Monday to Friday, or worse still, Monday to Sunday. I'm talking about just your efforts. And the Bible's vision of work is glorify God, and secondly, to love your neighbor. And we picked this up in the the, the passage that was read from Luke 10, where the uh, ruler comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus repeats a, a little formula that he's actually used at repeated times throughout the Gospel to capture the whole of the law, right? So if you were to summarise the whole of the Old Testament law and intent and purpose, he, he says, love the Lord your God, this is Jesus speaking, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's the glorify God bit, right? And then he says, and love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus summarizes the purpose of the Old Testament law with these two arms. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, the Old Testament law in in the Old Testament was God's way of saying to Israel, this is how you should work. Not just paid work, this is just how you should do life and labor. It should be guided by these various principles. And Jesus says, you can summarize these principles with these two, these two elements. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And that, that is the theme that continues through the Bible. In fact, in Genesis, before the law is even given, right, the, do you know what the second, what's the second sin in the Bible? Those who know their Bibles, well, what's the second sin? Of course, Adam and Eve, they, they eat the fruit from the tree. Right? What's the second one? it's Cain and Abel. The the second moment of great sin in the Bible is this, this horrific relational tearing between brothers where Cain murders his brother Abel. And Cain says this, he says to God after he's murdered him and God says, where are you? Of course he knows where he is, but he's asking Cain. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? It's actually implicit, even in his question. Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. You, in other words, you do have a responsibility for your brother. But can you see how, even from Genesis, Genesis four, the individualism that we're talking about is there, isn't it? Cain says, "What? What am I? Am I responsible for this other person? See." Even sin from very early in the Bible is conceived of as this, this, uh, this, this um, a man is an island unto himself to destroy Shakespeare, right? This, this is how we conceive of ourselves. Uh, and this, this storyline of the Bible continues, as I said, through the Old Testament into the New Testament, right? And so. In Galatians, Paul spends the whole of Galatians actually telling us why the Old Testament is no longer necessary for us to be right with God, okay, because of what Jesus has done. And so you think, oh, does he therefore kind of wipe away the obligation to love your neighbor? No, he actually finishes his letter in Galatians with this line from Galatians chapter 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. That's, that's the love-your-neighbour theme continuing through into the New Testament, past, past Jesus' death and resurrection, into the church. Let us do good to all people. Right? But do you see how, actually, interestingly, the New Testament always does this. It takes a principle from the Old Testament and sharpens it, right? Brings it into, into focus. And this is the focus, he says, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So Paul is saying, there is this kind of universal shape to people's work, which is to love your neighbour. But those people shaped by the gospel, those people who follow the Lord Jesus, are to do this, their work is to be particularly shaped towards the church, to God's people. Family and believers, church, kind of interchangeable in Paul's language. As you hear that, you might think, Oh, is that just like, is that actually like taking a good command, like love your neighbor, and making it selfish by focusing it just on like a group of people? Well, I can understand why you might think that, but you, you have to reorient the way that God thinks about the church. He's not saying this so that therefore the church is this great little self serving community, right? Where you, you kind of paid, paid an amazing membership fee and you get all the benefits that come with it. He's not saying that. He's saying the church is the focus of this particular activity of loving your neighbour because the church, as Pippi was describing in Spotlight, is actually the signpost to the world. It's it's the thing that displays the manifold wisdom of God. So this is what Paul said, same verse we had in Spotlight. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known. He could have said through God's individual people, through you, a believer... But he says, the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And in case you think, oh, that's just like some kind of spiritual thing, he actually goes on later in Ephesians 3 to say, to him, that is to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. That's not just the first church, that's all generations. And he's saying, pretty extraordinarily there in Ephesians three twenty-one, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, in other words, he's appointed that the church would glorify God as much as Jesus did in his earthly ministry. That's pretty amazing. And if you think it's just Paul, this is Peter says this in Ephesians in one Peter two. He says, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you." You see, God is saying, work has this wonderful other person centered. Focus, And actually, it's not just kind of like throw it all out there. It's pri- I mean, you do serve, you serve other people who are not part of the church, but the particular focus, he says, especially the family of believers, especially in this. Not so that it's just this kind of wonderful self-serving community that once you get in it, you get all these benefits from it. No, because this community has the opportunity to really say something extraordinary about God. Extraordinary about God. Now, what that means is, if you're a believer and you're part of the church, your work is shaped by these two principles, glorifying God and loving your neighbour with a particular focus on the local church. Actually, to understand your work, you can't take... I think we do this. We think work is Monday to Friday, and then I'll give a little bit of time to my local church on a Sunday. But actually, Paul is just bringing it all together in this homogenous blob of, of understanding work. It's loving your neighbour all the time and actually with a genuine desire to focus on God's church throughout the week, not just you know in, in, on a Sunday or in a midweek gap group or whatever it is, right? Now, so what is it, where does this take us? We've kind of built all these little pieces, it's like a little puzzle of, of the picture of work through the last three and a bit weeks now and principles, right, which we took from Um, The first week we talked about work, to the second week we talked about rest, to last week we said work is about glorifying God, to this week we said work is about loving your neighbour with a focus on the church. I think you can put all those pieces together and now actually start to answer the key question that we all probably have when we think about our work, which is what work should I do? What work should I do? Some people might be going through this series thinking, am I doing the right thing? Well, I've got a couple of questions which might help you answer that. I've got a diagram. I'm sorry if you can't see it because you're up the back. Not only are you missing out on the heater, you're also far from the screen. (laughs) I'm not trying to make a point here. Uh, I'm not, actually. I couldn't get the the, the, the graphic larger. so Let me read them out to you, Okay. So here's here's an individual, they're trying to work out what work they should do. First of all, I think one of the key questions is, what are the needs of the people? What are the needs of the people around me? This picks up the, the premise that we say, you know, one arm of understanding work is to love your day, but what are the needs of the people? The second question, I think, is what are the abilities and efficiencies God has given me? This is picking up something we talked about last week, where we said, God has put you in a place to do his purpose. That means he's given you abilities and deficiencies, actually, in line with where he's placed you. So what are the abilities and deficiencies? I mean that, that has something to do with you as an individual, but do you say it's not really individually focused, right? And thirdly, what does my community say? Where does my community say I am needed? Now, this is kind of understanding work in the context of God's family of believers, right? The family of faith. Uh, I think these three questions could be very helpful for you as you're trying to answer this question. Now, these are not the questions to ask, but what I'm trying to take out are questions which might come from the principles we've talked about when it comes to work. What are the needs of the people around me? What are the abilities and deficiencies God has given me? And deficiencies, right? Like, (laughs) Don't just think about your abilities. Uh, And where does my community say, I am needed? Now, I think these are really helpful questions, but you know what? These are very different questions to the questions our society tells us we should ask when we're conceiving of what we throw our time and effort into. Here's the question you've probably been told to ask in the past. What's my passion? What am I passionate about? What am I good at? Where will I be happy? I'm not, I don't want to denigrate those things. I don't want to denigrate them. But I just want to say perhaps those questions are more a reflection of a cultural mindset of individual expressivism, right? Which prioritises me. But the Gospel is saying, no, actually, we're meant to work for others. The, the beauty, actually, of the Gospel is this, this work which does not turn primarily inward but outward and upward. Now, the challenge, of course, for all of us is we continually have a tendency to work for ourselves. We have this tendency, and I think it is part of um, this, this question right, of, uh, of, of, of individualism. In the story of the Good Samaritan, okay, the religious leader comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then it goes on to say, wanting to justify himself, he asked further, right? Who is my neighbor? Those two questions are really interesting questions. They're really interesting questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? See how that, that is a fundamentally inward focused question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The beneficiary is me. The subject is me. Right? This is very, it's, it's interesting because we think, I'm saying individualism, expressive individualism is this kind of thing that's developed over particularly the last 50 years of our culture, but maybe not. Maybe it's just something that's built into us. Our our general inclination is to turn inward, as Augustine said. And then wanting to justify himself, in other words, wanting to make his life worthwhile, weighty, valuable, reminds us of our tendency to make work ultimately a, a personal value um, a, a process you know we, we go to work to find our value and our worth to justify our existence and our place they're two great questions and in response to these questions Jesus teaches like the opposite story of the good Samaritan quick recap is is there's a man who's beaten on the road to Jericho it's, if you if you know the story well you'll know this is a pretty dangerous road uh, two Jewish religious leaders walk past, a priest and a Levite. These are kind of guys who should know the, the, the shape of the law very well. They walk past, they see him. Perhaps they're scared. It's a dangerous road. Stopping might open them up to, um, to being beaten and robbed themselves. Uh, perhaps they just don't want to be ceremonially kind of tainted, some, you know, a, a man who's bleeding and wounded, there's lots of bodily fluids in the Old Testament law that would have, would have put them out of action for a few weeks in terms of ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, either way, they keep going. Head down, they just keep going. Then the Samaritan turns up. Now, the Samaritan is the enemy of the Jews, right? These are the people that the Jewish people always said, aha, uh-huh, they've got their relationship with God wrong. They have gone their own way, done their own thing. But this Samaritan stops sees the man, crosses over to the other side, we're told, binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn, and pays for his care. I mean, this man, because of the nature of his wounds, if he doesn't die on the side of the road, he's probably going to be under such enormous financial burden, he's going to be enslaved by the cost of recovery. It's like like getting sick in the US and not having health insurance, Um, he's he's going to be overwhelmed by this. But the Samaritan, he, he pays for him. He pays out of his own pocket to ensure that this man is not enslaved before he leaves. Two denarii, a very significant sum, to ensure that this man is adequately cared for. Jesus says, go and do likewise. He's raising the bar here, isn't he? He's saying this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. It looks like crossing over to the other side. It looks like not just dropping a couple of bucks in their bucket as you walk past them. It looks like not just crossing over but getting down on your knees and binding their wounds and then paying out of your own costs to free them. You know, we think good Samaritan. I mean, we have we have social welfare organizations named after this parable. And our interaction is to put a piece of clothing in the bin. That is not the Good Samaritan. That's not the challenge of this parable. Jesus is teaching this parable to raise the bar on what it looks like to love your neighbour and who your neighbour is. He's saying, you go to the person who you least want to be with and you care for them in a way that is deeply costly. And of course, in the context of what Jesus is saying, the wounds that we're meeting are not just physical wounds either, but of course the deep spiritual wounds... In fact, I think sometimes it might be easier for us to bind uh, physical wounds than it might be to bring the gospel to people who have spiritual wounds in our culture. It might be easier to put money or even time into caring for someone who's physically, physically hindered and leave behind their spiritual need. But that is equally costly, to bring the gospel to them, walk with them on the path. You know, sometimes for someone to come to faith takes... Two, three, four, five years of just being with them, answering their questions, going to courses with them, that is crossing over. That's what it looks like to love your neighbour, says Jesus. It's such a high bar. And I think as we think about that, we realise this is challenging for us. It's challenging because we tend to be individuals and we tend to overlay on work, personal worth and value. And these two things affect us. Tim Chester, English guy, wrote this great book called A Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness. I think we should all read that. That's, that's like our key word repeated twice in the heading, right? Um, I th- this, he, in, this cha- in one of his chapters, he articulates how the gospel and Jesus' teaching actually is meant to invert the way we think. So he says, this is how we normally make our decisions. Oh, let me read the boxes out too if you can't read them he says, we start with a vision of the lifestyle that we want. And I think what's challenging here is you'll see that this is a problem not for just the people out there, but for us in here, okay? He says, we start with a vision of the lifestyle we want. And so we pursue a job that will fund that lifestyle. And then we purchase a home that goes with that job, right? And then we'll say, oh, what church will I go to? What group of believers will I invest my life with? And finally, we ask, how will I serve? It's great because, I mean, if we're thinking about the the biblical vision of work and the place of the local church and God's people in that, do you see how that has subtly moved down the priority list in our thinking? Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that and I think, that's close to home. Chester actually says, no, no, now here's here's the thing. Here's the teaching point. He says, actually, the gospel inverts this. You literally just flip the the boxes around. He says, you start with how you're meant to serve. You start with that. And then you find a group of people, God's people, to serve. And then you work out the home you live in. And you work out the job that you need to, to facilitate that and make that happen. And finally, you understand the kind of lifestyle that you're called to. That's what a biblical vision of work does to us. You see, it doesn't actually just change the nine to five. It reorientates a whole way of thinking. It's meant to, at least. And it's not just... And, of course, if we're, if we're individualistic, this is a very hard challenge because what we're prioritising in these, these early boxes are things which do not benefit us. Right? This is challenging. But I said to you, it's not just our individualism that it affects, it's our understanding of the worth and value of work. I remember when I was writing this sermon the first time, that week I happened to be on the bus and I looked out the window and I saw this young mum with three kids this is not my wife, by the way, even though the, 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 um, the family shape is now the same. At the time, it wasn't. Um, this young mum, she had one kid in the pram who was screaming. She had another one who's dragging her arm and another one who's about two metres behind as they were kind of walking up this hill on a fairly warm weekday afternoon. It's funny how things kind of repeat in history, actually, because um, I've seen that happen in our own family now, too. You know what? I pitied her. I felt I such pity for her. But you know what? She's not to be pitied. She's not to be pitied. What she's doing is, is some of the most glorious work that's available. At the heart of that is just single minded service to people who can't pay it back. She's not to be pitied. The only reason I'm pitying her is because my conception of work is all about what's her worth and value in this moment. And I think, I've got to say this. If you're a young parent or if you're a if you're a, if you're a grandparent, a parent of young parents. Do not pity your parents who serve your children. They're not to be pitied. They're doing the great work of the gospel. And do not do not just encourage them to go straight back to to the kind of work which gathers us value in the eyes of the world. Because that is just that is not a gospel mindset to work and labor. That is a mindset shaped by the the values of this world which says that you are valuable because you get paid X amount of dollars and you sit in particular spaces and you exercise professional services. Now, you may well be serving people in those jobs, so don't let me disregard the service component of those jobs. But you see how our tendency is to import the values of this world to understand our labour. But the gospel... The gospel says that the the parent who serves their children follows the path of the cross. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's not to be pitied at all. It's not to be pitied at all. Jesus was someone who never made never made the task of service secondary to his own needs. He never did it. You can't find. I don't think you can find a single occasion in the whole Bible in the account of his life where he makes himself more important than someone else. There's this great story in, Matthew, in Mark 6 where the first five chapters, if you remember when we did it a couple of years ago now, it just filled with Jesus doing miracle upon miracle and, and the crowds are kind of flocking to him. He goes to a house to meet someone and like, the whole town turns up at the door. and There's just this sense in which um, every time he goes there, people want something of him. So Mark 6, Mark writes of how Jesus just kind of wanted some time alone, so he went to a solitary place, except the crowd found him. <laughs> and they come they come to hassle him. And you think at this point, oh, Jesus is going to say, quick, let's slip away. <laughs> but Mark says this, he says, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. His heart just is built to go out. His heart is built to go out to people regardless regardless of himself it's so beautiful it's so beautiful but the challenge of a model right the challenge of of what jesus is teaching in the good samaritan is the bar is so high it is so high i don't know about you but it is so high and so you can spend your life living this model and still not be sure that's what's challenging, because the guy comes and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him an answer which basically says, you won't know. <laughs> you can do this, you won't know. It's a little moment at the end of the, the movie, Saving Private Ryan. You know, it's, like the, it's, it's all fictional, but Private Ryan is this young guy, his brothers are all killed, so they send a battalion off, to, a little regiment off to find him, travel throughout Europe, you know, France, to find him, and as they go, each of the members of the regiment get picked off until they finally, they locate him, right? Tom Hanks is the main character, the head of the regiment. And um, they save him, but one of the last moments in the battle, the the, the penultimate scene is Tom Hanks' character dying. He's like one of the last in the regiment to die. Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, he's trying to save his life. It's pretty evident he's going to die. And Tom Hanks says, Earn this, earn this, earn this, earn this. All that this has been done for you, right? You think, oh, wow, okay. The, the movie started actually in the, the, um, the cemetery in Normandy and it comes back to this cemetery again. And there's the old man. He's actually the old Ryan. He's at the, he's at the tomb of the, the captain. And he's never sure. He's lived to like 90 but he's not sure if he's earned it. This is the problem. This is the problem with the story of the Good Samaritan, actually. You're never sure if you've earned it. And, you know, even if you've worked really hard, I think the reason we're never sure is because our hearts betray us at times, don't they? As good as our service... I was really interested with the election result this week, yesterday. It felt like an election result which was all about a common good, climate change right but maybe it was just because suddenly climate change affected us (laughs) maybe we weren't voting for the next generation we were just voting hoping that next year the rains would stop and there wouldn't be a bushfire even when we're doing something that on the surface looks laudable our hearts are so mixed Peter says offer hospitality without grumbling because he knows that that's what we're doing in our hearts. You know, we're serving, but our hearts are mixed. And the challenge, of course, with that is that it means you come before the Lord on the last day and the question of what must I do inherit life, eternal life, and he'll say, you did all these things, but look at your heart. Now, the Good Samaritan, it's interesting. Jesus is, on one level, he's teaching this story to raise the bar and to show us the level of... That the vision that God has for his people. This is what God's people are meant to look like. This is the kind of life he wants to see in his people. But Luke then takes this story and he puts it in his account of Jesus' life as Jesus is going to Jerusalem. In fact, a couple of verses before it, Luke says, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus looked to the cross, he set himself for the cross. And and Luke puts it here, one suspects, because actually in this parable, he is struck that Jesus is ultimately, really, truly the good Samaritan in this story. He's the only one willing to do what's necessary. Here's what Don Carson says, the author. He says, the ultimate good Samaritan who comes to broken people, condemned to death, and binds up their wounds and saves their lives and frees them forever from slavery because he pays it all, is jesus it's jesus you see my friends jesus is saying i'm willing to cross the road to come to you i know your wounds i know the wounds in your heart the things that no one else can see and all of your works of service are trying to cover up i've come to bind them i've come to give myself and pay everything to release you from the from the eternal debt of guilt to free you from your anxiety that all of your labors cannot save. I've come to do it for you. I'm going to give you what's most valuable, not just my material wealth, I'm going to give you myself. Because I am the good Samaritan, and I know that you are the beaten woman or man, and your heart is weighed down by your sin and your guilt, and I'm here to rescue you. And, you know, if you're willing to accept that, if that gospel is true, what it actually does is it just decouples your work from those things. It doesn't need to be about you. It doesn't need to be about your worth and value. You're loved by God. You're you're in his hands. And slowly, slowly you can serve people without the bitterness and the anger the judgmentalism and the grumbling because Jesus Christ has served you first let me pray heavenly father thank you for jesus thank you that he loves us with such deep profound self self-sacrificial love thank you that he crosses over to meet people who have turned their back on him actually whose first inclination is to serve ourselves, yet he comes and serves us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us a richer and deeper and fuller experience of the grace that we find in the gospel and so transform our lives to be people who long, actually, to glorify you and love our neighbor. Amen.